Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. We're thrilled today to be holding, to be hosting our uh, second ever uh, ambassador to the United States on NatSec Nightcap, uh, the National Security Institute at George Mason University, uh, University's uh, public-facing um, uh, featured program. So uh, we're thrilled to have Ambassador Arthur Sinodinos with us today. Uh, he previously served uh, as Australia's Ministry for Industry, Innovation, and Science. He was a senator from New South Wales in the Australian Parliament. Uh, he's been in the Senior Executive Service in Australia in the Department of Treasury, I mean, he's been appointed an officer of the Order of Australia for his service uh, to the executive function of government, uh, the development of economic policy and reform, and to the Greek community um, in Australia. So, Ambassador, we're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you for being with us. Um, and uh, if it's all right with you, we'll just go straight into some questions. Thanks, Jamil. Great to be with you. Look forward to it. Awesome. And by the way, for the audience, for those that are out there, uh, please uh, send some questions in the Q&A function. Uh, about about uh, about 30, 40 minutes in, we'll turn to your questions uh, and we'll ask Ambassador Sinodinos about those. So uh, please jump in and, and throw those in. So look, Ambassador, thanks for being here with us today. You know, we're thrilled um, uh, for you to be our second foreign guest. Um, and we're, we love to have a member of the Five Eyes, Five Eyes Coalition. Um, you know, it's particularly as we approach the 70th anniversary of the Five Eyes relationship, uh, or at least the ANZUS Treaty, um, you know, and hopefully, uh, as, as Prime Minister Morris has suggested, we'll be all getting together, uh, together, uh, you know, and to be able to celebrate that 70th anniversary. Um, you've served in a variety of senior roles across the Australian government over a number of years. How do you see both your role as serving in the government there and now as an ambassador to the U.S., how do you see the state of U.S.-Australian relations? Um, and what are the key bilateral issues at stake in our relationship today? Thanks, uh, Jamil. Um, look, the fundamentals of the Australian-U.S. relationship are good, no doubt about it. Um, they're based on a lot of factors, historical factors, cultural factors. Um, we fought together since World War I, standing up for values and interests that we hold in common. Um, the great work that the U.S. did after World War II with the global rules-based order, that's something which we've been a beneficiary and with the US and others, we, we seek to uphold and you know, reform over time. Um, sure. Under the Trump administration, we had a good relationship with um, the government of, of, of America, which built upon previous good relationships. And now as we look forward with the Biden relationship and knowing the affection that Joe Biden has, has for Australia and his understanding of the role we can play together in our region, I'm very optimistic we can build on that to an even stronger relationship. And you mentioned the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Treaty. That's an important treaty from our point of view. It's one of the anchors of our defense and security policy. Right. But you know, we were the first to invoke the ANZUS Treaty 20 years ago this year, around the time of 9-11. Uh, and, and that was a gesture of solidarity on our part to consult with our treaty partner about the events of the time. Uh, and as we've worked together around the world, uh, promoting a rules-based order, I can see, particularly with the focus of the Biden administration on working with allies and partners, a lot of good things we can do in the period ahead. It's a bit like the old band is back together again. That's great. And, and you know, this, the relationship between the U.S. and Australia, including after 9-11, so, has been so critical 
uh, to really uh, moving the U.S.'s agenda uh, forward across the globe and really, as you say, defending that rules-based international order. You know, uh, we're obviously all struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, around the globe. Um, and you mentioned uh, this idea with, with the new Biden administration coming in, uh, the old band getting back together. Um, do you see any major changes in the relationship um, uh, with, with the new administration coming in? I know that obviously the Biden administration has rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, that's obviously a big issue for Australia. Talk to us about what you see going forward besides that new, that sort of re reinvigoration of the partners and allies notion um, under the new administration. Well, the reinvigoration of allies and partners is very important. It's yeah. very important because of the challenges we face, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Um, it's a region which is increasingly dominated by China. And that's, you know, we want China to be strong and prosperous. It's in the, the world's interest that be the case. But this is about how we as a global order accommodate the rise of China in a way which is consistent with having level playing field for countries great and small. And right. we look to the United States through the multilateral engagement you mentioned by coming back into the Paris Agreement, the World Health Organization, helping to reform the World Trade Organization, going into other architecture in our region, like the Quad and others that we can talk about. We, we see that engagement as important in providing an anchor for stability, for security, and for openness in our own region. And that yeah. has important ramifications for the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, the, the situation and, and, and the strategic situation in the Indo-Pacific, uh, particularly when it comes to China um, and its role. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Australia has led the globe um, uh, and particularly working with the United States on the issues of Chinese telecommunications companies, Huawei and ZTE, at a time when uh, our other allies, particularly some of our key allies, including the Five Eyes relationship, you know, weren't necessarily with us on this issue. Australia led the way. Help us understand why Australia has been so forward leaning on this issue. I mean, what that means for the larger situation and the situation with China and the Indo-Pacific region. I think the reason we've been forward leaning on some of these issues is because we were confronted by facts, stubborn facts that we had to deal with. When we were thinking about 5G, we took advice about the role that various carriers could play. And our yeah. principle was that we didn't want to engage carriers who potentially could be conduits for information going back to another country right. or the government of another country. When it came to foreign interference in our politics, again, it was a red line. We put up legislation to counter foreign interference, whether it's in the media, in our universities, or in our political processes, in our elections or whatever. And that, and that legislation was not country specific. Right. But it has had the effect of being seen as something to counter potential Chinese influence in Australia. We have a large Chinese-Australian diaspora, and we're very mm -hmm. proud of them because they've done very well. Right. And they've been under pressure because of various things that have happened, and we've had to protect them in that regard. And that inevitably has led to tensions in our relationship yeah. with China. The point I would make is that I strongly believe that a lot of this is because China has hardened up and taken a more authoritarian turn in recent years. Yeah. Now, internal government, that's their business. But the fact is, it's had an impact on our relationship. We want to have a dialogue with China again, restore some of the relations which have been frayed in recent times. But we can't do that 
by abrogating our responsibilities to our national interest or our sovereignty. Yeah. Every you know, country has to have that. Yeah. You know, China's been getting more aggressive. We've seen them, the overflights of Taiwan have raised concerns. Um, their border skirmish with India. Um, you know, we've seen a number of these activities. What do you make of these activities? Are they, uh, is this a, is this simply a, a, just a change in posture? Is it something that's been happening for a while? We're now just paying attention to it. Um, if it and if it is a change in posture, how should we as, as an alliance think about that? Uh, particularly the Quad, right? This critical combination of Indo-Pacific nations who, uh, who have joined together uh, to really uh, understand and collaborate on some of these uh, economic and political and national security issues. I was one of those people who a few years ago thought that China would grow to be uh, a version of uh, Taiwan or Singapore on steroids. Yeah. But it's become more assertive in a way that people like me did not expect. So that's something we have to deal with. Now, China has the right to pursue its national interest, but there have been issues, and Hong Kong is an example, where there were international agreements around the status of Hong Kong, which are being abrogated. Right. Now, in those circumstances, if you're the U United Kingdom government, or if you're a partner of the UK, in that situation, do you stand up for those international agreements or the South China Sea the same? If there are right. international laws which cover these waterways, these international waterways, we all have an obligation to observe them. It can't just be selective based on how much power you bring to the table. Right. And so we have had to stand up. And the important thing in the period ahead is that we stand up together, not, not in a confrontationist way. There may well be a lot of geostrategic competition, but there right. are also areas where, where we need to cooperate. Sorry, that's one of the kids. Totally. Listen, I, I have I have the same situation going on right next to me, and I've got two dogs. So if you hear howling, it's the beagle. I, I'm sorry, they were using the intercom. But my, my point is, with, with China, there are areas where we will also want to cooperate. And this administration has made it clear, whether it's the pandemic, yeah. climate change, nuclear non-proliferation, economic recovery, these are all areas we can cooperate, but it has to be within a certain framework. Well, let's talk about economic recovery, because obviously this is a huge issue as we've now as we now start to come out of the COVID pandemic, hopefully uh, with uh, with the, with the vaccines finally getting out there I and mean, getting broadly distributed. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the supply chain issues. Right. And we all sort of recognize uh, in the during the pandemic that our, our collective allied supply chains rely on countries like China, pharmaceuticals, the precursor of chemicals, uh, you know, PPE has obviously been a huge issue. But we've long known about other supply chain issues, right? Whether it's rare earth metals or semiconductors um, or the like, um, how should we be thinking about the supply chain issues and what can be said about the US-Australian economic relationship and how and the strength of that uh, and the ability to build on sort of technology capabilities as between our two nations? One of the things that the pandemic highlighted was um, some vulnerabilities in our supply chains. That does not mean that we go back to square one and say that every country has got to produce everything for itself. Right. Our message to the US and others has been that particularly in areas of critical technology, these are technologies which impact on our security, our prosperity, our social cohesion, that um, working with allies and partners to recast supply chains is a better way to go than every country trying to do everything for itself undertake right. autarky or domestic self-sufficiency. So we've argued to the US 
There are areas, critical minerals is an example, where we need to break the, the monopoly over many of those minerals and rare earths that China has, and which has strategic implications because the yeah. use of those minerals in military applications and also increasingly in renewable energy applications, in batteries and magnets yes. and, and all the rest of it, very important. So what we're saying to the Americans and others is let's work together on supply chain resilience in critical areas. In the uh, Indo-Pacific region, we've launched an initiative with Japan and India around supply chain resilience. And back home, the government is doing a, a stock take of our supply chain resilience. And we're going to talk to the United States and others about all that. We have a frontier technology dialogue with the US that was uh, commenced uh, after the state visit by Prime Minister Morrison to the US in 2019. That right. covers areas of emerging technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, hypersonics, cyber, information warfare, et cetera, and space. So the, the point is, let's find areas where we can cooperate, particularly in critical technologies, because increasingly we do find there is a bit of a technological decoupling occurring in areas mm. where there might be what you would describe, Jamil, as dual-use technologies. Yeah. They may have both a military and civil application. And there's been a concern, I know here in the US in particular, about the extent to which research going on in some of those fields can potentially be used by other countries for their own ends. And so right. we're saying among trusted partners, let's see how we do research in important areas and how, what are the applications that come from that? Yeah. So, so Ambassador, do you, do you think that we ought to be building then on the five eyes relationship, this, this, this network of five nations that have long worked together on intelligence issues and, and are deeply trusted, essentially functioning as one united front, uh, collecting information and sharing it? Is that the right place to start this conversation about supply chains, critical minerals and the like? Uh, given that we know and can rely on one another and have these close sharing relationships, is that the place to start or is there a different starting point uh, when it comes to things like critical minerals and resilient supply chains? Well, with critical minerals, for example, we have quite a bilateral dialogue going on. Um, the U.S. Department of Defense just um, announced a contract with Linus, which is a rare earth processor in Australia, yes. and which also has facilities in Malaysia. But we'll be doing it out of Australia, creating a supply chain between Australia and the U.S. Uh, there'll be a processing facility in Texas. So there's a bilateral element to this. Yes. In terms of the, the more minilateral plurilateral, multilateral element of this. The Five Eyes had its origins around um, intelligence exchange right. and cooperation. And there's a bit of a debate sometimes, well, is it a good vehicle for extending out to other forms of cooperation? The short answer to that is it all depends on what sort of cooperation you're talking about. For example, during the last pandemic, our treasurer, our minister for finance, initiated Five Eyes meetings with his colleagues to talk about economic issues and supply issues you raised before. Right. Um, so we also have a law enforcement and justice Five Eyes sort of grouping. Mm -hmm. And they seem to work. In, in the area of law enforcement, I think it works because there are so many similarities in our legal systems between the five countries. Right. The question when you go beyond that is... Um, is it the right grouping, particularly when it comes to issues in the Asia-Pacific? So, for example, the Quad, which is Australia, U, uh, the US, 
Japan and India has sort of emerged naturally over the last few years as a sort of anchor for like-minded right. countries in the region. So I think it's horses for courses. Uh, and you don't want to load one structure with too many yeah. sort of different functions. These things are organic. They develop as people find a way of coming together and it's right. useful. You know, I wonder about, about these structures. You know, we, the U.S. Was, uh, was a key part of the TPP, uh, at least until we weren't. Uh, we pulled out, um, and, uh, and this trade relationship has now developed um, into, the, into the regional economic co cooperation uh, yep. partnership that, is, that involves China, right? And so yes. TPP appeared to be a trade relationship that would be a bulwark against China. Uh, that's now been replaced with a... With a, with a with a partnership uh, that doesn't include the U.S., but does include China. How should the U.S. and the new administration think about that? Um, and should, should, is TPP lost and gone forever? Should, are we trying to revitalize it? What, if, if it is gone forever, what should be the plan for allied nations, the Quad, um, and on, on the trading front? Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership was not so much driven by the Chinese, it was more an ASEAN-driven, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Association of Southeast yes. Asian Nations. It was driven by them, uh, and the idea was to do a, a broad agreement through the region that involved their free trade partners, and that involved us, New Zealand, China, Korea, etc. Um, so we were able, India dropped out. So we were able to get to a point where we could bring it together and it, it got signed off uh, in December last year. Yeah. Uh, and it's a big agreement and help with rule setting in the region. We do want the US to come back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We think without the US, it's a bit like Hamlet without the Prince. So from our point of view, the US being in there is important for economic reasons. It multiplies right. the gains from the agreement. It means the U.S. plays an important role in setting standards and rules for trade and exchange in the region. And strategically, it shows the commitment further of the U.S. to the region on the economic side and complements the sort of military uh, and security commitments that the U.S. has made to the region. So, yes, we want the U.S. back in there. They would be welcome. The debate in the US has made it clear that it may not be easy to get new trade agreements up in the short term. Right. But we're, we're talking to people here who are willing to advocate for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And the feedback we get is it may well be that the US reconsiders the TPP, but maybe with some change in some provisions, maybe to mirror what mm. you did with the Mexico-Canada agreement, the revamped yes. NAFTA. Right. And that may be a way of making it easier for the new administration to come back in in due course. In the meantime, we're going to pursue with this administration a digital agreement. Okay. There's a lot of good work we can do to promote digital trade, not just between mm. the US and Australia. We want to regionalize any such agreement. We've made some good agreements in the region. The one we have with Singapore is one that people in the US have told us they like it because it's a very good clear, comprehensive agreement and covers things like financial services, for example. Right. The point of those agreements is that to make it easier to do business, particularly small, for small businesses, to do business across borders and particularly in a more digitized world.
Right. Well, how should we think about that? You know, um, there's there long standing deep economic ties uh, between our nations, often times a topic not discussed, uh, you know, in the popular media about the deep economic relationship between the U.S. and Australia. Um, what impact does this growing and evolving and changing relationship have, particularly on digital trade and the like, uh, have uh, to the Indo-Pacific region writ large and particularly how we see China? Right. Do we see this 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 burgeoning digital relationship amongst countries like Singapore the U.S., Australia, uh, other nations. Is that a potential bulwark against Chinese economic bullying? Or, or do we think it has, a, it has a different role to play in our, in our, in our bilateral and our multilateral relationship with the region? I think those sorts of agreements, comprehensive, high standard agreements, set important rules and standards for the region. And that encourages other countries to be involved. And it sets benchmarks for China as well in that regard. And that's important because I think China will respect the weight of countries and GDP yeah. that go into these agreements. And that may change the calculus of cost and benefit for them about being involved uh, in these international rules and standards rather than seeking to dictate rules and standards. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges with China that we've faced, uh, and this has been writ large uh, globally, has been this issue of intellectual property protection, right? And, uh, and it's one of these norms that we simply haven't been able to effectively address. We've, we've tried different ways. Uh, the Obama administration uh, had, a, had an active effort with the Chinese to, uh, to threaten sanctions and, and, then, and then ease them off uh, when, when the sort of the digital hacking piece of this IP theft slowed down, um, but didn't end to be clear. How, how uh, through what international mechanism or structures do we think we're going to be, are we gonna be able to sort of tame uh, the Chinese uh, uh, voracious appetite for intellectual property um, uh, that we've seen historically, is, is, that, is this a solvable problem or will this just be a problem that continues to uh, uh, you know, challenge our relationship because they fundamentally look at the issue in a different way than our group of Western nations do? Look, the, there have been some commentators who've been concerned about what they call the splinter net, the idea that we get uh, dueling technology systems, internet yeah. systems, and all the rest of it, um, for the reasons you mentioned earlier. I, I think all I can say to that is that um, if we want to set international standards and encourage other countries to observe them, we've got to maximise the number of countries involved in the process. And having the US providing leadership in that, including, for example, candidacies to lead international bodies which are particularly relevant to standards in particular fields, yes. and coordinating our candidacies and all of, all of that, that's all very important. Um, so going forward, it's about creating an environment in which people are convinced that there's a benefit to being part of a, an international standard that's been set and is broadly accepted, and that makes it easier for countries to do commerce and all the rest of it. Um, I think you'll find in areas of critical technology, military-related technologies, there will be a bit of a dual technology paradigm yeah taking yeah. root but that's the challenge we face given some of the um issues at the moment yeah i mean it seems to me that that, that dual path that you're talking about is something that's, that's almost inevitable when it comes to these critical technologies and these, these dual use technologies just given the supply chain issues we discussed earlier um, on that front uh, one of our one of our i see there's a lot of questions in the in the in the chat and the q a so i might as well go to a few of them that fit in here uh, so christopher woody asks about um Australia's recent plans to increase its defense spending over the coming decade, right? 
Yeah. How should we expect uh, the ADF's presence and activity in the, in the Indo-Pacific region to change going forward? Do we expect to see a more forward-leaning posture for uh, the ADF in the region? Well, um, the defense strategic update last year was um, essentially a recognition that circumstances in the region had changed more quickly than we'd anticipated. Things were going in the direction we expected, but it's happened more quickly than we thought. So it was important to review our strategic defense outlook and work out what to do. The first decision was to increase the resources available and make sure we can devote at least 2% of GDP to defense on an annual basis. So we've come up with a decadal plan uh, to spend something like 570 billion over the next decade on defense, uh, including 200 plus billion on capability. We've upped the amount we wanna get on the capability side. Um, we're upping the amount we, we uh, spend on high technology weapons, precision guided missiles and the rest. Yeah. And there've been some announcements lately in that regard. Um, and so what that has done is um, I think shown our credibility that you know we're not an ally that just wants to um, glide through on the coattails of someone else or the slipstream of someone else. Um, as my prime minister likes to say, you know, um, we're not relying on the U.S. to do it for us. You know, this is what we're doing will actually complement what the U.S. is doing in the region. We're also made the point that our focus will be principally on the Indo-Pacific rather than having troops further afield. <clears throat> and also what it means is we can provide more support for the U.S. in the region going, going by this route. And I think you'll find in the years ahead uh, as a result of a force posture working group we put together with um, the US last year at the OSMIN, the annual OSMIN meetings, our foreign and defense ministers met with uh, the US's. Um, as a result of that, we're gonna look increasingly, how do we complement your force posture in the region and work together? So there's greater complementarity, interoperability, uh, greater agility um, in terms of the Australian landmass. How does that play into U.S. calculations about what it does in the region? Right. So there's there's plenty to do. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and somebody, one of our guests wanted to add, wanted to extend that this sort of question about about defense spending and defense cooperation uh, to the cyber realm, right? Um, how how does Australia see uh, cooperation with uh, the U.S. when it comes to um, uh, cyber issues? Um, and in particular, uh, we have a question from Shannon Vavra at CyberScoop. Um, who asks about ASD's cooperation, it's Australian Signals uh, Intelligence Directorate uh, with US Cyber Command. Uh, in the past, they've collaborated uh, target ISIS propaganda and, and the like. Um, and the question is, um, given that ASD has recently seen hackers taking advantage of the pandemic, do you see room for collaboration like we did on ISIS uh, with the US uh, to combat hackers uh, that are targeting, for example, hospital networks and other critical infrastructure? Yeah, um, ASD uh, cooperates very closely with Cyber Command, with the NSA here. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of personnel in the change involved, as well right. as the exchange of information. Um, and there's quite, um, I think, a strong commonality of outlook about the challenges. And since about 2016, Australia has been upgrading its cyber security strategy. <clears throat> the point we've made to Australian companies, for example, is that thinking about cybersecurity is not a luxury. 
it's got to be core business, yeah. given the pervasiveness of the digital world. And given the challenges that we now face, and you mentioned before, yeah, there's ransomware, there's malware, all of that that's going on, bringing down critical infrastructure, hospital systems, electricity grids, and private companies. So increasingly, we've upped our spending on cybersecurity, and we're also passing laws which will give the federal government in Australia a more active role in stepping in to major cybersecurity incidents in the private sector, remediating them and helping to strengthen the private sector, make directors more aware of their obligations in this regard, and also to see cybersecurity not just as a challenge but an opportunity because, um, as I think you and I have discussed before, there's some very talented cybersecurity companies and people in Australia. There's quite a talented workforce and our government is promoting that talented workforce and those talented companies. And part of my job is to promote them here into the U.S. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, on the technology front and sort of the promotion of work being done in Australia, um, one of our questioners asked about the Sydney Quantum Academy um, and the recent launch of the Sydney Quantum Academy. Um, how will that sort of promote, how will the current government promote Australia's natural strengths uh, in this emerging critical technology area? Well, there are a number of elements to that. We actually want Sydney to be a bit of a centre for quantum computing excellence. Yeah. Uh, The Academy is part of that. The work at the University of New South Wales on silicon bits Mm -hmm. uh, and how that will uh, operate in a quantum computing world and the impact it can have on computational possibilities. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is essentially see how far we can push the development of a quantum computing industry in Australia and have it as a core capability, uh, a, an area of comparative advantage, if you like, because the, the, the lesson of innovation is that those who actually do the innovation and put in the hard work and have the first mover advantage will reap the benefits. And for us, the benefits are clearly on a number of levels, security levels, economic levels, and so on. So for us, there's quite a detailed strategy now going in to promoting our quantum computing capabilities. And as I mentioned before, that's one of the areas we're gonna be doing more work with the US. And there are a number of Australian companies getting major contracts with elements of the US system around this as well. Right, and is this this one of the places where we might be able to sort of leverage uh, both our, our, our national security relationship as well as our economic relationship to really uh, build uh, sort of a, a common sort of, you know, I, I don't know if supply chain is the right word in this context, but when it comes to quantum and AI and the like, um, it seems like this is, this is, these are two areas where we might leverage both the national security and the economic relationship to really move both our nations forward. Is that, is that right in your view? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, I think having that commonality of, outlook and experience around national security makes us comfortable working with each other. We know what we're talking about. We trust each other. I think it makes it much easier to have that sort of relationship. Of course, if you're looking at the economic aspects of a relationship, it's got to be commercial. It's got to work. But it will work, I think, uh, and the transaction costs of working together will be lower because we have that five eyes trust in the relationship. Yeah. There's a couple of questions uh, fr- uh, from the audience um, on, on the Quad uh, and China. 
as well as on China and South China Sea. So I'll try and combine these two questions. One from William Deal, who asked about the prospects of, of the Quad really working hard to counter PRC influence in the Indo-Pacific. Is that, is that a likely uh, outcome of some of the Quad conversations going on now? Um, and second, um, how does Australia think, and maybe the Quad, how's the Quad writ large Think about balancing economic relationships and, and the necessary interreliance on China and the region uh, with the Chinese dominance goals. They look at the region and, and in particular, their activities in the South China Sea. How do those things come together, if at all? Well, with, with the Quad, um, it's, it's evolving. It's working on cooperation in various fields, maritime security, for example, <clears throat> information, cyber, etc. Um, so at the moment, it's an informal mechanism that's identifying the areas of cooperation. Different countries take the lead in different spaces. It's on one level, you can say it's not so much anti-China as just pro-like-minded democracies in the region. I think that's, yeah. that's the essence of it. There's no doubt in recent years, though, that India has been upping its level of activity, including um, in the Quad, yeah. because of its own experiences with China on its own border. And I think a recognition that um, countries need to assert their independence and their sovereignty. And as a big country in the region, it has a big role to play yeah. in that regard. Um, so at this stage, it's evolving, it's informal, but I think it's sending a strong signal that the like-minded democracies of the region, and don't forget, yeah. the US is an Asia-Pacific power, right? People seem to think somehow it's an outsider. It's not. It's part of the region. And I think it's important, therefore, to see it. That's what the Quad is about, these like-minded democracies working together to promote a free, open, inclusive Indo-Pacific. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important to make that point because I think even in America, I'm not sure that Americans think of ourselves as an, as an, as an Asia-Pacific power, but you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a critical part of our economic relationship and our national security relationship, um, particularly as, as we see this rise of China. Um, you know, I want to I hit on a point that you just mentioned. Um, and you talked about sort of this, this, this sort of newfound... Uh, uh, situation with India in the sense that uh, India has long sort of played footsie with China. Let's just call it what it is, right? Um, uh, they've been part of the non-aligned movement for a long time. They, they take pride in that non-aligned uh, posture. Um, but the fact of the matter is that while they recognize that challenge that China presents on their own border, um, they've, they've, you know, tried to find a middle path forward. And I think it, it seems to me, at least from the outside, and I, I mentioned your thoughts, you're much closer to it. It seems to me that the, the border skirmish, as one small example, uh, is really highlighted for them, along with all the other stuff happening around their periphery with the South China Sea and the like, uh, and, 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 and they demonstrated through their actions with respect to Chinese technology that, that they started to realize that China is a much bigger threat than it is a benefit to them. Is that an overreading and an overstatement of, of, of the situation with India, um, or, or are, they, are they headed in that direction in your mind? I think what's happened in recent years is India itself has become more assertive about its role in the region. And it's recognized <clears throat> that um, if there's a vacuum in the region, it'll be filled by others. So I think it's, it's a combination of events, which has, uh, I think, made the Indians 
look at the region and say, well, we've got to do more. It's in our interest to do more, and we've got to do it with partners who understand us, who broadly support our interests and values, and we can work with. Uh, and, and I think the skirmishes and everything else have played. So there have been some push factors, but there are also some pull factors. And, and the pull factor is they're also developing their economy. They're going through various stages of development, and they're going to get bigger. And they're thinking, as we get bigger, how's the region going to look? How are we going to fit into the region? And right. should the region be dominated by one big player or should we have a more open, fluid, inclusive region? Interesting. So it's more of an evolution of their understanding of their own role, uh, both both domestically but also in, in the region, uh, than it is sort of a, a pivot about their view about China. The, the two are clearly attached, but yes. it's more about, yeah. about the foreign. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. Right, right, right. Interesting. Um, uh, we have another question about, about, about defense issues from Richard Sala, who uh, asked about the U.S. Marine Corps and their, and their footprint in Darwin. Uh, as he describes it, they've been increasing their footprint in Darwin since 2014. Um, how does Australia view that bilateral engagement? Has it been a success? Do you expect that footprint to grow? Will it become a potentially a permanent versus a rotational force? Um, how, does, how does Australia think about uh, that, that footprint? And, and is it viewed through the eye of, of, of providing some regional deterrence, bilateral training, both? What's, what's, that, what's that about? The first thing to say is that um, it's had a good reception in Australia and particularly in the Northern Territory where Darwin is the capital. Um, they've blended very well into the local community. Uh, and that was just a reminder because I was up there inspecting the force um, before I came on this assignment to Washington. Mm -hmm. And um, there's no doubt that it's because Australians and Americans get on and the alliance, the history of that all plays into it. So from our point of view, it's, it's, it's a very straightforward, it's a very easy thing to do. Some logistical challenges, which we've overcome and we're helping to build infrastructure to mm -hmm. facilitate the force potentially getting bigger as time goes on. Um, not sure about permanency. It, it, at this stage, it would be viewed more as a rotating force, which gives people experience in the region by right. bringing them through. And there's a message to the region about US commitment to the region. Yeah. We know about their commitment to Australia. That's all fine. We're committed to each other. We work together. We're complementary. But it's about the statement it also makes to the region. Yeah, no, I think that's I think it's important. Uh, one of the things that's come up, uh, and one of our one of our uh, visiting fellows, Harold Moss, uh, raises the question, you know, about this rise of extremism. We obviously saw the Christchurch incident uh, in New Zealand, um, and and the associated threats that extremism uh, brings. We've seen that happen here in the United States um, with the recent events at the Capitol um, and and prior to that. Um, how concerned are, are you and the Australian government uh, about this rise of extremism, whether here? Uh, or, or in Australia and in the region. Um, and is there anything the Five Eyes uh, Coalition can do to counter uh, this rising trend of extremism uh, of, of, of various flavors? Yeah, I mean, I think this rising tide of, of extremism in recent times has been more focused on extreme right-wing terrorism mm. coming to the fore. Whereas, as you know, a few years ago, the focus was all on Islamic Right. Related terrorism. Right. And but I think what's happened is is as evidence has come forward of what's happening on the right, 
law enforcement agencies and others have been upgrading what they do in that regard. And that's happened in Australia. It's happened in the US. Um, part of the political challenge when you see the rise of extremism is to ask yourself, why, well, why does this happen? Are there social or economic drivers, cultural drivers? Um, often for people who feel economically marginalised or dispossessed, who are feeling their circumstances beyond their control, looking for answers, certainty, surety, someone to blame for what's happened. You, you can see what can happen. So often I ask myself, because we've seen this in various forms over the years, as you know, or over the decades, is, right. okay, what's driving this and can we address that? In Australia, for example, um, we've had programs to try and address social cohesion issues, particularly, for example, with immigrant communities who might otherwise feel marginalised, treated as outsiders, yeah. and therefore tend to look for their identity in gangs or in other groups. The most difficult aspect of all of this is people being radicalised online, lone wolf actors, very yeah. hard to control. But in Australia, in the US and elsewhere, we do a lot of work on all of this and, and are, on the whole, I think, pretty effective at knowing who's doing what. Yeah, but it's a, it's a challenge. And the 6th of January was a, a great uh, uh, illustration of how these problems can spill over into the mainstream. Right, right. And, and in a lot of ways, a wake up call um, and, and makes us all often think about, look, when there are these national security threats, when they arise domestically, how do we think about the use of national security capabilities to address these domestic threats? There are those in the U.S. who have been calling for a domestic terrorism law, right? Of course, the challenge with that is you have to think about the impact, the spillover impacts of that, right? And then the prior experience that we've had, at least in this nation, of using uh, those laws to suppress uh, domestic dissent. And so, you know, there's this, there's this tough challenge that I think Australia faces also with thinking about these, the, the rise of these trends, how to counter them, uh, but how not to over, over exaggerate the role and, and, not, and not go too far and allow this to suppress domestic dissent. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge we're facing, and I'm sure you all are facing also. Um, there's a, did you have a thought on that, sir? I was just going to say, this will always be a challenge for democracies, for open societies, where you yes. find that balance. Um, we've had quite strong anti-terror legislation since about 9-11. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's been criticism at times about how stringent it is. Some people think it should be more stringent. Others think it's too stringent. But the reality is that when there's a terrorist incident, people don't say, you know, the laws were too hard. That's right. They, they often think, well, you know, why wasn't more action taken to prevent this from happening? So it's this hierarchy of needs that comes yes. into play in these circumstances. No, absolutely. Uh, we have two questions. Interesting. Normally we're, we're talking about uh, international relations and our relations to our nations. Uh, but we have two questions about Australian uh, domestic uh, issues. Feel free to, if, 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 we, if we don't want to talk about it, or if it doesn't make sense, but um, one question from Michael Nelson at the uh, Carnegie Endowment uh, for Peace, um, who asks about this, uh, this question of data uh, and, and data laws in Australia. Um, he talks about the idea that information is the new oil and that sort of data is in some ways a potential currency. Um, and, uh, and he asks about this new Australian law uh, that requires uh, internet companies to pay for media websites, uh, linking to articles and the like. Um, he, it, it appears that he's concerned about this and, and, and doesn't think this is the right approach. Uh, what, what can you say to us about, about the genesis of this law and, uh, and, and sort of why this makes sense uh, in, in the view of the Australian uh, government and public? 
Yeah, well, these laws or these uh, the code that we're talking about had its uh, origins in inquiries by the competition regulator uh, into big tech and the mm -hmm. impact that that was having on the advertising market. And of course, the mainstream newspapers and, and other news media um, don't have the same access to advertising revenue and all the rest of it that they had once. And mm -hmm. there was a view that um, now because of the role of the internet search engines and all the rest of it, people getting their stuff online, this was really starting to cut um, the media's lunch, the news media's right. lunch. And that um, the challenge was that if the news media came under pressure to keep cutting costs and all the rest of it, what impact did that have on quality journalism? And was there a gain sharing model where, you know, um, some of the benefits of having that journalism could in fact be paid for by seeking what was perceived as a fairer share of returns from the big tech search engines. Now you'd have all sorts of debates over what should or should not be the case. The government came to a view after seeking to have a voluntary code that it'll have to have a, a mandatory code around this. Um, but there is a Senate process going on in Australia, a Senate investigation and the uh, Google, Facebook and others, the USTR have all made submissions and we'll have to see how it evolves. What Google and Facebook are saying is they don't want to do things which are inconsistent with the spirit of the internet or the, the operation of the internet as they see it. And also they're saying that they're prepared to do commercial deals with news media and don't need a code which may change the incentives right. of news media companies to bargain with them because they'll think, oh, we've got the code. That will right. be a better deal than doing a, a deal directly with the companies. Well, I mean, that doesn't seem like a crazy theory, right? That the markets can sort of sort this out if it, if it makes sense. But it sounds like, at least in the first instance, there was a market mechanism and that at least the, 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 the consideration of a code has at least prompted these conversations. Um, one of our other uh, guests asked about, um, about uh, money laundering and Australian financial institutions um, and the, the detection in some recent high profile instances of, uh, of, of inadvertent laundering of, of money on behalf of organized crime. Um, what, is, what is the government looking at and thinking about doing when it, when it comes to uh, addressing the illicit finance issue, both domestically uh, and overseas? Well, um, we have an organization called Austrac, which essentially tracks financial transactions and um, uh, inquires into money laundering and the rest. And um, they've, they've had some big successes in recent times in that regard. <clears throat> and we also have finance-related terror laws to track down people who are seeking to raise money or provide money for terrorist activity abroad. So there's quite a broad suite of powers that the federal government now has. And we, uh, we have an Austrac representative here in Washington, and she works with uh, the US administration, the Treasury and others on, on those issues. And what's interesting with the um, Biden administration is that as part of their democracy and human rights agenda, they're talking about how to attack kleptocracy and corruption right? Uh, and people paying their fair share of tax and all the rest of it. And money laundering laws actually are quite important in that regard. So it'd be interesting to see whether there's further move in those areas under the new administration. Yeah. And how are you all thinking about uh, this issue, both money laundering and, 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 and illicit finance and, and all those associations when it comes to these, these issues of cryptocurrency, right? Obviously, there's a huge debate going on internationally about cryptocurrency generally, 
But there's also a discussion, you see the Chinese making moves with respect to a digital reserve currency. Um, is, how's, Austra- how's the Australian government thinking about uh, crypto, um, um, AML, and, and this issue of digital reserve currencies? Well, the, the Reserve Bank in Australia at the moment, I think, has a bit of a watching brief on how this will all develop. Um, we've got quite a few people involved in cryptocurrencies per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Australia, there's been more focus on some of the spin-offs of that, including blockchain technology, mm-hmm. for example, and how that can be used to verify transactions, um, how that can be used to trace elements of supply chains and, mm-hmm. and, and provide verification of true identity, etc. So there's been a bit of a tendency to focus more on how the technology can be used as opposed to what to do about cryptocurrency per se. I mean, there's a real debate which is which is being had, but I think we'll get bigger about whether cryptocurrencies are, are really an alternative to fiat mm. money or whether they're just a, a potentially a store of value to speculate in, if you know what I mean. Yeah. No, well, I mean, we, we've seen plenty of that speculation in the U.S. stock market in, in, in recent weeks and months. And so, um, you know, I, I do want to return, um, uh, you know, as we're coming to our last 10 minutes. And thank you again, uh, uh, Ambassador, for being with us. And for folks in the audience, if you have any last questions to Ambassador, uh, now's your chance to get them in. So go ahead and put them in the Q&A function. Um, but I do want to return to international relations uh, and, and the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and given the critically important role of Australia in the region, um, and, and, and the strong relationship between the U.S. You know, we, you mentioned Hong Kong uh, as we were talking earlier. Um, and, and, you know, Australia has leaned forward on this issue. Australia has been very critical um, uh, and condemned Chinese actions in Hong Kong recently. And China recently, you know, used some very aggressive language uh, to respond. I believe they used the term counterstrike uh, to refer to uh, how they'd respond if Australia continued to press, uh, press the envelope on Hong Kong. How is the Australian government thinking about this aggressive use of language? Um, and, and how can countries of the region really stand up to uh, this type of, uh, of what might amount to bullying and, may, and maybe something more? Well, well our, our attitude to the language has been uh, that, look, let's lower the heat on all of this. Mm. Let's have a dialogue. Um, don't put conditions on the, you know, on, on anything. We're not entering into any dialogue subject to conditions being dictated by anybody, but let, let's talk about the issues at stake and find a way through. Um, but we can't be seen to compromise on areas of national sovereignty or national interest. Um, that, is, that is a red line. So we could be in this situation for a while yet. That, that is the reality. That's why we're looking to our allies and partners for us to work together to send a message of solidarity, which convinces the Chinese that countries can't be picked off uh, in this way. Uh, but yeah. the important thing now is to have that dialogue. And what's good about the uh, Biden administration in this area is that they're talking both about being competitive, where they need to be competitive with China, but also finding areas to cooperate. Yeah. You know, uh, speaking of sort of trying to pick off countries, um, you know, we had a situation where uh, the Five Eyes nations got together um, uh, to respond on Hong Kong to Chinese behavior and uh, New Zealand declined to join. And we just had Ambassador Rosemary Banks on recently. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to ask her this question. Uh, should we be concerned about, um, about the, the decision by New Zealand to not join that Five Eyes uh, communique on, uh, on Hong Kong? 
I mean, there'll be circumstances where individual countries make a judgment about whether they um, participate in a particular statement at a particular time. That may well depend on what else is going on in their relationships, including sure. with China at the time. But New Zealand is a member of the Five Eyes. They're, from my observations in Washington, dealing with New Zealand here in Washington, they're keen to participate and contribute. Clearly, between the US and New Zealand, going back a number of decades, there have been issues in relation to ANZUS. Uh, but, you know, our attitude, we're very close to New Zealand. They're just across the ditch, as we say, back home. We're very close with them. We're very close with the US. And, uh, and most of the time, we're cooperating together quite well. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I want to return, uh, if we might, in our last uh, last five or so minutes, Ambassador, to to this issue of cybersecurity. You know, we um, we recently have heard a number of disclosures over the last month about uh, what was once called the Solar Winds hack, but I now think is has clearly broadened beyond that one company, and is and we're now referring to it as Sunburst, or or I've heard the, <laughs> the new term is Holiday Bear uh, to refer to this. Uh, this is the Russians uh, targeting uh, the U.S. and key allies, including Australia, other Five Eyes countries. You know, and one of the things facing us is this really large-scale threat of cyber espionage, um, including against our collective private sectors. Um, one of the things that goes beyond those cyber espionage is this question about cyber attack um, and, and, and actual offensive capabilities, the potential uh, destruction or modification of, of information. How is the Australian government thinking about uh, the threat of both uh, large-scale espionage, um, you know, and, and, and potential offensive cyber attack? Um, and are there particular key challenges uh, that you all are facing where, where the U.S. and Australia might collaborate uh, more tightly on cyber defense? Now, these are common challenges on cyber defense. And um, there are situations where an attack is, is done um, simply to shake a system up, to show they can do it. There are circumstances where it's done for the reason you mentioned earlier, which is try and espionage to try and extract information that may be right. valuable or whatever. Um, so we, in cir circumstances like that, where we're potentially affected by something that's happened to here, there's a lot of talk, cooperation, pool mm -hmm. our resources, what do we know, etc., and we work together. The, the question of how you go forward um, with misinformation and disinformation um, is a is a real challenge because. You know, um, we don't want the internet to be so overloaded with regulation that it can't do its job or the things that right. are particular benefits of how it works. Of so it comes back to the point we were talking about earlier, an open society and how it defends itself. So we've got to try and have a robust public debate where we are transparent about what's going on and flushing it out. So the fact that, for example, the US government is reviewing security after each election, flushing mm -hmm. out what could have happened, indicating how measures can be taken to offset this. That's all important. It's educating the public about what is going on. In a democracy, you know, transparency is the best disinfectant. Sunshine mm -hmm. is the best disinfectant. Absolutely. So, um, there, there's a role for laws. There's a role for cooperation. But let's also get the message out there so the public understand the fake news, the disinformation, the misinformation that's going on uh, in, in many of these areas. I think the public would be shocked 
to know the extent of activities that go on in what we might describe as the gray zone. It's that mm. area below open, hot conflict. Right. But I think we do need to educate the public without seeking to scare people into the challenges we face in this whole area. Yeah. You know, one of the areas, um, as we talk about cyber defense, uh, that Australia has really been leaning forward in is really uh, developing not just a strong defense capability, um, but really uh, a, a commercial cyber marketplace, right? There's really been a lot of effort to focus on startups um, and tech talent. Um, how is the Australian government thinking about getting that talent into the market? And, and what can we, the U.S. and Australia, be doing better on our, on our, on our sort of commercial uh, tech partnership? I mean, the federal government has been putting more resources into training up people in the cyberspace, both in the public sector and for the private sector. We have a cybersecurity growth centre. And when I was industry minister, I launched their competitiveness plan, mm. which was aimed at how do we get um, a really great educated pool of people versed in cyber in Australia who can provide the basis for domestic industry and potentially an export industry as well. And one of the things I see happening between the US and Australia is as good Australian cyber firms come along, what we're doing is we're pushing them into the US, into the US market, because there are so many similarities, but it's a much bigger market, very tough market, competitive, but a really good market yeah. to do business in. And as they say in the classics, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. That is a great, you know, that is a great note to end on. We've got two minutes left. So uh, listen, Ambassador Sinios, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for talking about the, the critically important relationship that our two nations have. Uh, thank you to your government and to the Australian people uh, for the partnership that we've had over these, these seven decades uh, of the Australia-New Zealand-US uh, partnership and, and collective defense partnership. Um, uh, we'd love to have you back um, and we'd love, to, we'd love to do more with, with you all and with your nation. Thank you again. Thank you, audience, for staying with us on a, on a, on a Thursday evening. Um, with that, um, uh, we'll be back next month uh, with Natsec Nightcap. So please keep an eye out on LinkedIn and Twitter. Follow us at, at Mason Natsec and keep an eye on our, uh, our various podcasts, Natsec uh, Fault Lines, uh, the, uh, our, our effort with the amazing women of the intelligence community, Iron Butterfly, and NSI Live. Ambassador, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks, mate. It's been great. Thank you. Same here. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.